So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day. Hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. All right, Michael, we have reached more than halfway into the year as we record today. It's July 10th. As always, at this halfway point, we suffer, we list make, we uh, crucify ourselves in an effort to make sense of what we've watched so far and do a top 10 to this point. Do you have any thoughts, ruminations, or experiences in your viewings thus far that you want to mention? Good question. Um, yeah, we've survived the first six months of the year. I guess when I think about my own movie going thus far, it still feels to me like I'm very much in, still in pandemic viewing mode, even though theaters where we're located in Seattle have slowly started to reopen um, and are more or less open. A lot of the art house theaters are not. Um, we can go to our AMC's, I think, are Regal's as well, but it still feels to me like, um, you know, we're we're still a little ways from normal movie going in terms of like the fair that I'm like I'm most excited about. Um, but we're getting there, uh, you know. There is a uh, reason to be hopeful for the second half of the year, I think, and there's lots I've seen that I uh, really loved. I think, you know, actually, like, a much higher percentage of the movies I've watched this year versus other years, I've really, really liked. Um, I think it's uh, been a very fun year so, so far. Uh, what about you? Yeah, well, I, I would first make the point that I think that you've liked them so much because you've been able to be very selective about good virtual foreign films through the the virtual cinema options and there's they're pretty well curated i think the stuff that flows through there so i think that maybe your what you're pulling from is a lot higher quality especially after a year where they couldn't have released than Hmm. perhaps in a lot of recent years you know this is a very unique milieu um i guess I, i should mention i just saw black widow theaters in our area are at full capacity mm-hmm. no masks it's kind of crazy it's also very clear that we're still not through it as you mentioned you know it's not the same there's not the same sense there's a nervousness to everybody sitting there with their masks off there's people next to you wearing masks and you, you know it's it's not mandatory but a lot of people are still doing it um so it's yeah, it's an interesting bounce back. This is definitely a very odd early year. You know, a lot of my stuff is festival selections, not wide release. Um, a lot of the wide release stuff I found to be um, middling at best. Um, I, I would border on terrible and that I, I don't have anything that was in wide release theatrically this year in my top 30. So that's kind of a reflection of, you know, cinema at large. Um perhaps, and, you know, our rebound back into the theater slowly happening with F9 and Black Widow this week. But, you know, by the end of this month, July, hopefully David Lowry's Green Knight will signal art is uh, able to be projected back in theaters again. Yeah, I don't think I had even realized it until now that 
I think this is the first year in a while that I don't have a single movie on my top 10 list that I saw in a theater, which is kind of crazy. This feels like we're coming out of the pandemic. You would have thought that that would have happened last year, but I think if I'm remembering my list from last year, I know like Beanpole was one that I saw in theaters just before uh, lockdown kicked into gear in like March or April of last year. Um, yeah, you, you used the word selective in describing what I've watched. And I would definitely say that is the case, you know, when you're at home and you're deciding what to watch, you know, I feel like there is this real leveling of the playing field when you could watch a a new release and kind of roll the dice on something that you're not even sure you might or might not like, um, just because it's new, because it's a little buzzy, or you can just kind of follow your own sensibility. And I've definitely done a lot more of that this year so far. Um, but uh, I'll be curious to see if my balance kind of uh, or if, if I shift again towards new releases as theaters open up. Um, just have to wait and see. I'll bet against it. I think you are watching such high quality foreign films in the virtual cinema right now that I mm. it's going to be tough for me to envision you uh, going elsewhere. But I will say that out of my entire top 10, I only had the opportunity to see one in theaters once for six days. And none of those showtimes actually worked. And um, I think you know what uh, film that is, but I don't want to forecast it as we're, we are counting down. But it is a, a film that played at the crest for six days only mm-hmm. with, I think, a four and like a 555 showtime. Like I couldn't have made either of those due to work or prior obligations. Oh, this isn't giving too much away. I think this is a documentary, correct? It is. Okay, yeah. I was delighted to see that this movie made it to one of our uh, local small theaters. Our um, only landmark in all the state. Yeah, very close by us personally. Um, any uh, parameters that you followed as you made the list this year? Uh, same as, hard. as last year. Um, if something came out in 2020 and I just didn't have the time to see it because we see so much and it's really worth the mention, then I will bring it this year with me. And I did do that with one film and we'll talk about her here at the top. Um, actually her effort, you know, it, it's, um, I don't mind including television. I really tried not to this time later on in the year when we do our full list, I, I will include television. I do have a limited series that I'll mention. Um, I might, if the occasion arises, do some honorable mentions of what I think is truly great television and perhaps a renaissance of comedy right now. Mm. But, um, yeah, without further ado, I think we can get to rising stars. All right. Uh, so historically in this category, we've each picked like an actor and an actress who we think are up and comers, emerging talents, people on the cusp of, uh, great yeah, things the, the title is um stolen directly from a star is born i think that we'd started this show uh right around the the time that a star is born the third remake with gaga and cooper was releasing um and so we just kind of you know took inspiration from that and the the positivity like what a great thing to incorporate like the the future is bright into a list that is um often perhaps a little bit more negative and critical than, Mm. um, you know, bring some levity to it. Totally. You want to start us off with one or the other, an actor or actress or whatever you have? I have uh, 
an actress that I can start us with, I will first talk about Sophia Koppel, the actress in Nina Thyberg's uh, Sundance Darling Pleasure that was acquired by A24. Um, from what I gather, this is a debut performance for her. She's never done anything in her life. She is um, European, um, and she is speaking American while she's in L.A. doing... Um, porn shoots, essentially, and trying to break into the industry as an adult actress. The film is very acerbic and witty, and she is very um, stiff um, in her her sense of self. She's not weak, um, and it's a very interesting lens to kind of view this entire thing through. The experience is very harrowing at certain points, but her tough... Um, exterior and her tough interior um you you kind of slowly get a sense for and it's all in the performance it's not in the um overtness of the message of the film or anything like that it's it's all what you see is what you get very stripped um type of a storytelling and a very stripped like character performance where it's just her delivering these feelings or these experiences physically and emotionally and it's it's really convincing and I'm terribly impressed for a first-time actress to do what she did. Very cool. And I think this comes out later this year, yeah? I believe I so. Re- A24 said not. something about fall, I think, after the they acquired it. And I, I think that that's a good fit. But I would not be surprised if this one did get pushed. Mm. And this does start a unfortunate um, motif for a lot of my selections, which is going to be... Uh, movies that you can't watch yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the note of parameters, that is one thing I've I've tried to be a little conscious of as I make my list. There's there's pros and cons to doing it every which way, and I think the lists are only going to get messier as theaters come back, but virtual cinemas continue and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I try to limit the picks to things that are uh, getting released commercially uh, this year. That's just when it feels like these films are really having their moment um, is when they are um, viewable in like somewhat ordinary circumstances, whether that's a theater or VOD or streaming. Um, so they're commercial releases um, that didn't premiere like decades ago. For example, like there are more Hong Sang Soo movies coming out this year commercially for the first time that first played in Korea in like the late nineties. They don't really feel like they are, just now having their moment they have uh, they represent a different moment in time the only exceptions are movies that i just don't think will get distribution period um and this is a change for my perimeters last year because that actually led to me leaving things off that i really shouldn't have left off like my mexican pretzel yeah that would have been an overlap for us there was a movie called the calming that i really liked that you know hasn't gotten distribution that should have been on there um so if I just don't think it's going to come out, period, you got to give it some love somewhere so it'll go for the year it premiered in. Um, so more notes on parameters. Yeah, Messy that's, stuff. That's why I, I don't do that because there's never a guarantee of when something's going to come out. And then you might not remember it the same way that you experienced it in order to even have it on your list in the same way. So it's just what I saw is what you get. <laughs> there you go. Uh, anyways, that said, uh, one of my rising, rising stars is Noe Abita. This is an actress in a film this year called Slalom, uh, which is directed by Charlene Favier. It is about, um, 
a teenage girl at a competitive ski academy um, who is a highly talented skier, and she ends up in this uh, very troubling relationship with her coach who ends up kind of exploiting his position of power and authority over her in sexual and and gross ways, and it kind of leads to this, um, you know, uh, kind of breakdown, this kind of psychological turmoil as she experiences this. Um, I think she's a, 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 a very magnetic performer. She was in another movie a couple years ago that I just caught up with called Genesee, um, which is a French-Canadian film by a filmmaker named Philippe Lesage, who, which I thought was incredible. I thought it was really, really underseen, um, and she stood out to me there as well. Um, she is a French-language uh, speaker. I'm not really sure if she's actually French or French-Canadian um, or what her where her roots are. Um, but I think she has more French language work coming up. So this is not a pick that I think is going to necessarily like break into Hollywood, you know, immediately by any means. But, um, I think, I think she's incredibly talented and, uh, magnetic as a performer. Um, she's one that I I keep, um, uh, getting excited about when I see her name pop up somewhere. So that's Noe Abita. She was in the movie Slalom this year. That's a blind spot for me. I gotta catch up with that one. Um, and now my second rising star is another actress. However, she is also a director, producer, and writer. You know who I'm going with here? Rada Blank? That's exactly it. I'm going with Rada Blank. She, as I mentioned, directed, produced, wrote, and acted in a film called The 40-Year-Old Version, which is, um, from what I gather, kind of a... Um, you know, one lady show version of her life and, you know, a journey of artistic pursuit, failed artistic pursuit, um, the meaning of art translated down from family. There's, there's a lot of density here, but the most impressive thing is that this is not only a directorial debut, not only a screenwriting debut for film, not only an acting debut in film, not only a producing debut in film, but it's all of those things together. And it all sticks, and it's all meaningful. This was a film that came out in very late 2020, direct to Netflix. Um, I'd heard it mentioned on, I think, um, Tasha Robinson's end of the year um, top 10 list that she did. And I, you know, it was just one of those blind spots that I didn't get to before we recorded ours. And I got to it, I think, in January or February. And it was just immediate, like, I, I, I flicked it on expecting to fall asleep. You know, late in the day, I just wanted to kind of catch up with something Tasha had recommended, and I was magnetized, and I stuck with that film until the very, very end, fully expecting to turn it off after 10 minutes, and I can't recommend it highly enough, and we will talk about it later. I remember seeing this on quite a few lists. I remember, I think it was quite high on uh, New York Times list, like Manola Darchett, Sayo Scott. This was um, quite widely beloved, I think. Good movie. I, like I will this one. say they have great taste. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, my second pick is one I have less to say about because I'm still, this movie is still so fresh to me and I just saw it. The movie is Zola, which I just saw in the last week or two. And the pick is Taylor Page. It's one of the leads here. She has done a handful of other fairly high profile movies, but ones I just didn't see. I don't even know how um, large of roles she had in those. Like she was in... Mulraney's Black Bottom. Um, there oh, was one other. Yeah. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. I didn't yeah. see that movie. Very little time, but like a crucial character. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, Zola, it's it's a wild movie. If you've read the Twitter thread, that's not a surprise. Um, Taylor Page plays this uh, young woman who makes friends very quickly with uh, um, a girl played by Riley Keough, and they go on this impulsive trip to Florida where Taylor Page's character thinks they're going to be just stripping for money, and it'll be a quick and fun trip, and it becomes something she did not expect to get into whatsoever. Um, The side eye she gives in this movie as she's um, standing on the sidelines of things she's so appalled by and just shocked by is too funny, and uh, and super absorbing. I think she's um, she really has a, just a a, 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 a a cool presence on screen um, that, that was very funny and uh, magnetic. Well, I just have to use that word again. Um, but yeah, I'll keep it short. Um, a lot of people, I think, still have to see this movie. Um, but Taylor Page, really, really solid stuff. Indeed, not bad at pimping too. Not bad. Uh, on to our number tens. I will kick us off with the directorial debut that I just caught at the very, very end of Tribeca Film Festival 2021, Lorelei. You want to move out of the halfway house and into your girlfriend's house? Says here she has a part-time job and has three children. Well, she ain't winning any Mother of the Year awards bringing you home. It's okay. Waylon's family now. Directed by Sabrina Doyle. This is her third film, as I understand it. It is her first feature film. She'd done two shorts preceding this. Um, it is not bravura. It's not auteur, really. It's it's not those things that we, I think, are kind of trained to look for in film, um, where you're looking for the next, you know, Villeneuve or the next Nolan, where, you know, you're, you're looking for this really... Um, communicative type of a a film language. This is a lot more stripped back, laid back, letting the dramatic beats speak for themselves, letting the actors play the scene and walk around and do a long take and um, providing you with the, the framing of the story, but really letting the actors share it and relying on the screenplay, which is good on the page to continue to be good in their hands. And um, I wish that I could say that, it wasn't, but it was refreshing, which means that, you know, you're not seeing that very uh, often in other places. Um, and the the two stars here are Jenna Malone, who's probably best known for Donnie Darko, um, and then mm. Pablo Schreiber, who's probably best known for um, American Gods, in which he plays a leprechaun. Um, but he's also in First Man. Um, he was in Skyscraper with Dwayne Johnson and probably his best critical uh, film that he was involved in was Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Um, And they're Mm. just two adults that are at a certain place in life. Uh, Schreiber finds himself coming out of prison after taking the rap for a biker gang um, so that all his friends that were in the gang wouldn't go down, just him, for about 13 years. And he was in high school and his high school sweetheart uh, had a couple kids while he was gone uh, with other men, obviously. And she's single, and they begin to um, co-inhabit similar spaces and fall back into a romance that was ripped apart, you know, against their will that, that is still very fresh. And um, But they also have to navigate 
where they are at these points in their lives, which is very different. And um, there's a transformation that takes place. And I'll say that the ending does not define an outcome in a mm. very, very meaningful way. I, th I think that even if this isn't a film that you um, absolutely adore or put in your, your top whatever, you know, ranked lists, it's a film that will stick with you if you watch it and you'll really remember the feelings that you had along the way. And I think that that's a, a great mark of cinema. Not familiar with Pablo Schreiber, I don't think at least, but I'm a big fan of Jenna Malone. That uh, interests right. me for sure. Yeah. I guess Refn. She might be known for Refn. Neon Demon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I think Donnie Darko is probably a little bit more circulated. Probably. Yeah. Cool. All right. What is your number 10? Uh, my number 10 is Atlantis. You, your fathers, and your grandfathers worked long and hard to produce a decent living for your families. But th times are changing. This is a Russian film. The director's name is Valentin Vasyanovich. Um, this is set in the mid-2020s to the not-too-distant future in eastern Ukraine. And it imagines that Ukraine has um, won this war with Russia, but it is not much of a triumphant victory for the country. And Ukraine has been left in complete and utter ruin as a result of this conflict. So we're kind of in this like post-apocalyptic sci-fi war drama, but it's all rendered in this very art house, kind of slow cinema kind of sensibility. Um, we followed two particular soldiers who were involved in this conflict and are kind of returning home, trying to restart their lives in this totally bleak um, landscape that is uh, what they find themselves in now. Both of them have pretty severe PTSD. One of them succumbs to that PTSD in a pretty striking way quite early on. That's not much of a spoiler, and we follow um, his close friend as he tries to kind of resume living. Um, the film is shot almost entirely in these kind of uh, static master shots that are just so mesmerizing and powerful. I think if anyone could, you know, take issue with this film, they might call it too dour, too humorless, too humorless or just miserableist. And I totally get that. But I think it's a really mesmerizing movie for how it's um, shot. I was so compelled by um, the filmmaking here. Um, and I think, uh, there's some, some really striking formal choices that we, uh, get like shots that, uh, show us the world in this kind of, uh, thermal vision, um, that we, uh, don't really have any perspective that we're attached to as we see these shots. And there's some interesting ideas, I think, about, um, looking for warmth in a world that feels so cold and cruel after a conflict. Um, and I think there's very much hope and optimism to be found if people are paying attention to even some really simple story details. Um, so it's heavy stuff, but um, I think it's really um, powerful uh, filmmaking for those who are up for it. Uh, so that's called Atlantis, um, and it's available on VOD for rental right now. Sounds very Soviet-influenced, very much like uh, their you know grandparents and parents had been murdered ceaselessly in world war ii that sounds just as macabre as i expected <laughs> yeah material wise yes uh, stylistically it's not like soviet montage by any means it's very slow and steady and measured in its pace but material materially or content wise very heavy stuff yeah 
All right, we are on to our squandered actor and actress. Could be a director, whatever type of person you chose. Um, I did go with an actor and an actress, and I'll go ahead and get us started with my squandered actor of the last too long, and that is Ty Sheridan, Michael. Mm, okay, okay. The last time I enjoyed a performance from him was the last time I enjoyed a film that he was in that I saw, hmm. and I saw that film with you. What film was that? That was Ready Player One. Oh yeah, it's been a minute. That was, I think, directly before the show started, and that was a Steven Spielberg film, 2018, I think in May, and you know, before that he'd done a film called The Yellow Birds that wasn't very good, but he was very interesting in it, um, and then he kind of had, you know, some down average years but he did do the stanford prison experiment which he was very good in, in his role in and before that you know he his first four films were or three films were the tree of life mud and joe joe being a Nicolas cage uh film that he did that was really really great um this is a, an actor that i have all the faith in the world and the talent i just think that he's been in terrible project after terrible project or project that isn't um, speaking to me in any way. So I didn't even know, know to seek it out. He did something called The Mountain, um, directed by Rick Alverson, co-starring Jeff Goldblum. I had no idea about it. I just, you know, that's an indie I skipped right over. He did Dark Phoenix, which I think is probably my worst film of 2019. Um, 2020, I don't remember the exact window, but I... I vehemently dislike that film. The Night Clerk is another one I skipped. And then mm. I just did Voyagers, which was absolutely horrendous. Um, I'm hoping he can turn it around in the Paul Schrader film, Card Counter. Mm. Um, I don't know how big of a role he's going to have, um, but he is second build on the Letterboxd application, at least. Um, mm. And that's co-starring with Oscar Isaac, Willem Dafoe, Tiffany Haddish. I, I think that if there's ever a director to get you back on track whether you like it or not it might be uh schrader <laughs> i like that i am optimistic about that movie for sure that's my what is your first squandered choice michael uh my first one is rosamund pike uh the Good one choice. the one film of hers this year i saw was called i care a lot netflix movie i think if i remember correctly you care for that film not so much i did not care for that movie a great deal I think that's the only thing she has done this year. To my knowledge, I could be wrong about that. Um, and there have been a handful of other movies she's done in the last couple of years that I just have not even had much of an interest in seeing, though I can't say I think they're that I, I can't say I, that they are bad, obviously. I haven't seen them. Um, but man, she is an actress who I think is really great and, and who I like quite a bit. I think she is what makes Gone Girl uh, a movie I like so much. And I think she does icy in a way that so few actresses do it's so fun when she leans into her um more uh kind of sadistic side and that's clearly what i care a lot is going for she plays a woman who is uh exploiting the elderly in that movie for for her own financial gain and uh i, I don't think that's a very interesting movie i would rather see her in kinds of things like gone girl not to you know just typecast her, but like if I were to be kind of unrealistic in my wishes, because I don't think this is actually going to happen, but you know, I I think of her as kind of like a Hitchcock heroine in a way, you know, like yeah, if she um, had worked with Hitchcock, 
Like, well, that would be great too, but any of those, you know, um, those icy blondes you associate with Hipcock, I think all of those actresses are wonderful. She has something in common with them. I would love to, like, if, you know, there's no one who I think apes Hitchcock today like De Palma does. If he was to resume that practice of his in aping Hitchcock and to cast Rosamund Pike in one of those roles, that would be spectacular. Not likely, but um, I will just play that out in my head. Um, hope she gets something better soon, though. That does sound delicious. She was in my favorite film of 2018, Hostiles. Mm. Um, and I will say that she was in a film in 2018 that you might have missed that is actually pretty okay. Uh, Seven Days in Entebbe, which is like a, mm. a hostage film that's got international implications. She she was a very interesting character um, in that. And I, I remember that distinctly because she was also in A Private War that year and Beirut that year, which were terrible and mm. also are just as forgettable name-wise. You already don't know Bummer. which one I recommend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. My second choice and final choice here for Squandered Actress is going to be Suki Waterhouse, who kind of exploded onto the scene, one might say, in The Bad Batch, at least in the film um, you know, world, the the folks that are really paying attention to cinema rather than like pop culture, but pop culture wise, she was in the adaptation of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, sure she got some notoriety from that or Insurgent before that. Um, but The Bad Batch is really where I think she kind of leapt to life. Um, she then had a supporting role in The White Princess, which is head, uh, it's a limited series headlined by Jodie Cormer. Um, who I think that anyone that's seen Killing Eve knows and loves. And if you haven't, you just haven't seen it yet because you will join legions of others that do. Um, She had Assassination Nation, which I really disliked. Um, I I thought it was a very acerbic film that I could not deal with the, um, what I would call like foolish acidity. Like it at at many levels was just like a a really low rent, really high uh, philosophical, um, ridiculous type of a film that had a bunch of great actors, but really nothing in the marrow. So everything just kind of fell apart. Um, and she's been in things like Detective Pikachu and um, more recently Seance, Creation Stories. I've, I've seen all these films. They're all terrible films. She's good, though. She is a good mm. actress. She's just paired with these bad movies. She had a supporting role in what I think is probably her best film since 2016, uh, Rainy Day in New York, Woody Allen. Um, mm. But I I just really think that she has a lot to offer and has very few opportunities. I wish that I could say that I was looking forward to a project she's involved in. Unfortunately, um, I'm nervous about her next couple projects. One of which is Persuasion, has one of your favorite actresses as the lead, Dakota Johnson, but it also has Henry Golding in it, which worries me because he's kind of more of a person than an actor. You know, he's playing himself in many mm-hmm. ways when he acts, and I'm I'm not terribly intrigued by Carrie Cracknell, who's the director's previous works. And then she also has Dolly Land from Mary Harron, uh, who is uh, previously the director of American Psycho and Alias Grace, and they've worked together on a previous project, but I, I just, I don't have good feelings about a Salvador Dali film mm. um, with Ben Kingsley. Call me jaded, but it's been a while since Ben Kingsley led a film that I thought worked. Mm. 
I think you mentioned the Bad Batch. She was in that, right? Yes. I liked her in that That's movie. where she That one comes to mind. To yeah. Like yeah. That, that was her big con. Yeah. I, I, I liked her in that movie, for sure. Cool. Good stuff. Um, my other squandered performer who I think is not really living up to their potential at the moment. Full transparency. I don't know how passionate I am about this pick. I struggled a little with this category. There weren't any terribly obvious contenders for me this year, but I went with Andrew Garfield, who is in the film Mainstream this year from Gia Coppola, mm-hmm. um, with Maya Hawk and Nat Wolf and a couple other familiar faces. Um, it's kind of a social media, um, internet culture satire of sorts. I thought it was pretty terrible, and I thought he was pretty terrible in it. Um, oh, I, I would not really even call him, like, even remotely anything like my favorite actor, so I'm not saying uh, he is someone who I love that is getting cast in um, uh, bad movies like this one, but I do think he is pretty great in something like Silence, the Scorsese movie, although it sure helps when you're working with someone like Scorsese. Um, but uh, yeah, this is one I've chewed on less, but I do think he um, maybe just needs to, to find some directors who dap into his skill sets better than he currently has. I uh, couldn't speak at length about what else he has, um, in what he has in the works at the moment, but um, I hope it is... Uh, Better stuff. Leave it at that. I, I, I do have to say I I disagree about your your view, but I respect it. I also thought mainstream was bad, but I think that the least bad thing about it is him, and I think the most bad hmm. thing about it is Coppola's direction and like unwieldy understanding of what she's even trying to do to begin with. Um, but his that next sounds like a problem <laughs> is Tick Tick Boom with Lin Manuel Miranda, which is a uh, musical, from what I understand. Then he's going to be in Showalter's The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which um, oh, I'm right. nervous yeah. about because I, the trailer for that. I do not trust him uh, being Showalter as a director. But, I mean, previously he was in Under the Silver Lake, which I, I thought Better. you responded Better, for to. sure. Yeah. He was in Breathe from Andy Serkis, which I thought you were okay with. But right before Silence, he did Hacksaw Ridge, uh, Mel Gibson film that I thought he was stupendous in. And then 99 Holmes opposite of uh, uh, Michael Shannon, who I, I think that, that film is also very interesting. Great dramatic. Yeah, those are like years ago, right? I'm, they I'm, are, but those are literally like his last projects. Right. It goes like mainstream and then it goes directly to Under the Silver Lake. And then it, like I went in proper descending order of his projects. He's doing true. very few projects, I guess. I true. Say. Squandered is weird because... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you can take the longer term view, um, but I, 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 I didn't look back that far in filmographies, um, since they're the 2021 picks. I was, gotcha. I mainly focused on the 2021 movies. Yeah. Yeah. And Gia Coppola really laid an egg and that's what you were most upset about. Mr. Palo Alto. I, uh, yeah, I did like Palo Alto back in the day. This was definitely a, uh, letdown. Yeah. Huge letdown okay. for me. Cause you, you recommended Palo Alto to me and I loved it and I was like, okay, Next one, here we go, and it was trashy. Very different stuff. Um, all right, Michael, on to number nine. All right, Michael, at number nine, I have The Killing of Two Lovers. Hey, Alex. Yeah? What do you call a pile of kittens? What? A meowton. Come on, Dad. Meowton. Live my life. 
You working? Yeah. This early? Yeah, Dad. Stop digging. I think we're doing the right thing. David, I love you. You love me. We're trying to figure this out. By the time. I'm losing her, Dad. Love is a feeling, and feelings, they move in, they move out. Mom's cheating on you. It is a drama film starring Clayne Crawford. I think I've already waxed poetic about my um, appreciation for him on the show a few times and um, his previous roles in television and uh, directing television and just he, he really reminds me of, you know, those 1960s to 1980s guys that would just get it done, whether there's explosions and metal sticking in them or not. Very much a uh, Rick Dalton type, perhaps, mm. uh, for any Tarantino lovers. Revisiting Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, now that the novel's out. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But this is uh, a man who is going through a separation with his wife. They've got uh, four kids together, and the uh, screw he tries to tighten, and there's something pressing on the other side that doesn't let it go in. No matter how hard he keeps trying to get dialed in, there's something pushing out. There's um, some misunderstanding, and he is going through this intense violence and rage that is restrained, consistently restrained, and you don't get the impression at the beginning of the film that it is going to be. I would argue that when we previewed the trailer, I, I did not think it would be. I thought it was going to be a murder film. Um, but it very much was not. And instead of ever acting violently, he actually becomes the victim of violence at one point. Mm. And it is just beautifully photographed, um, really thoughtful, I think in the stanzas of how it's orchestrated, like you, you really get a sense of different emotionalities building and, and mixing together as the film progresses and right at a crescendo um, or an, right when you expect the crescendo to occur or, or the beat to drop, if you will, um, it very much ends in a, in a way that kind of takes all the previous dramatic momentum away and you're left they're holding a bag of very fraught emotions throughout this whole process and not really knowing what to do with this bag because you didn't get given a conventional way of dealing with it. Mm. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I look for is, you know, emotional response to cinema as well as performance and direction. And this just had it all really cohesively together. I full transparency don't expect this to be on my top 10 at the end of the year. But I, I do think that it is the sign of a filmmaker coming into their own, an actor um, making a stamp on film. And I think the the omen of very good things to come from both the director and the actor here. This is one that I have almost watched on like three occasions on different nights where I had like a couple other movies of interest. And like every time it, the, my mood has just happened to lead me in a different direction. Uh just like purely based on the mood of the day, the circumstances, how bad the shadow is or the light coming in through my window onto my TV is. But I'll definitely get to this one before the end of the year. Yeah, allow me to uh, to encourage you and others with a, a simple convincing argument. It is 84 minutes long. 
Oh, not bad. I did not know that. That's pretty brief. It is. Cool. Um, all right, Michael. What is your number nine? My number nine is the only one on my list that I just don't think will get distribution, which is really unfortunate. I would love it if it did, but I don't know. We'll wait and see. Um, it is called Short Vacation. What are you talking about? The South Korean film, it is co-directed by two young men whose names are Kwon Min Pyo and Han Sol Seo. This is not only a debut, but also technically a student film. It is these guys' graduation film from film school uh, that made it into um, the new, new director's new films festival earlier this year um it is uh also quite short it is an hour and 19 minutes might be the shortest one on my list or, or one of the shortest um it's about four middle school aged girls korean girls who are uh, a part of their school's photography club and one of the one of the girls is new to the school they kind of bond all together at the start of the film and a summer vacation approaches the teacher who heads up this photography club gives them disposable cameras and tells them that their summer project is to take pictures of something that they think represents the end of the world. And that's as much of a prompt as they get. They can take that in any direction that they want. And so the girls kind of collectively decide or one of them suggests that they just get on the train in their town and just take it to the end of the tracks and maybe something about the end of the train tracks will represent like an ending of things and there will be something there that works um mm. it is a a shockingly naturalistic movie there is nothing like like too cute about it or, or condescending it sometimes it just doesn't even feel like a movie it feels very documentary like in how totally natural these girls are together um, and they're mostly just talking about like normal things that any middle school age girl might talk about. Um, and they're not having big epiphanies, but they are maybe just starting to think about, you know, ideas that are a little bit bigger than the ones they ordinarily might as they do this project. Um, one of the more striking formal choices is that when they take pictures, sometimes the movie just kind of stops in its own tracks and the photos fill up the screen and it's just silent for a second. And we watch the photos that they've, or we look at the photos they've taken and they're not usually like masterpieces by any means, but they are good and they're interesting for what the girls find interesting. Um, nothing terribly bad happens on the trip. Nothing terribly eventful happens. And yet it feels kind of miraculous to see these young girls being totally normal, starting to kind of, you know, develop an interest in artistry um, and think about these kind of big ideas with um, in a really low-key and naturalistic way. Um, I thought it was very, very special. And it's called Short Vacation. So hopefully it'll be viewable again at some point in some form or another. That sounds very lovely. Um, you briefly mentioned a metaphor about, or a visual metaphor for them, about the the idea of the train arriving at the tracks and finding what's at the end of it really called to mind an elephant sitting still. The end of the bus mm. line. Very, not, nowhere near as heavy as that film. Sounds like uh, But, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you there. All right. We are now on to Wounded Soldiers, Michael. For brevity's sake, I will say that um, 
My Wounded Soldier is The Killing of Two Lovers. It grossed a total of $70,000 USD based on my research. I can't imagine it had a very large release. Um, it has had a fairly decent critical release, but I think it is still vastly underseen. And um, at this point in the year, there's not much grosses, grossing that I can go off of for other titles, um, to be perfectly frank. And everything else that's very high in my list is trending well, I think, on other locations, um, Metacritic and, and Rotten Tomatoes and all that stuff. So I went with budget for this one, and I will just re-underline the directing. Uh, you know, it's it's a stunning aspect ratio for the photography, a lot of natural light, great performance central to it, and a, a sense of emotionality that you will take with you in that bag of emotions at the end of the film. Good stuff. My Wounded Soldier is uh, French Exit from Azazel Jacobs, which I think made a, a little over a million bucks at the box office worldwide, but the Metacritic score is like a 52. It's somewhere in the 50s for sure. Not stellar by any means. This movie does not all work, that is for sure, but I think this is a very idiosyncratic voice and easily one of the more idiosyncratic voices you were likely to have come across at any multiplex uh in 2021 so far he's he's kind of in the vein of like a Witt Stillman or a Noah Baumbach movie with some um kind of literariness in the dialogue um but with its with its very own kind of brand of eccentricity that I totally think will rub a lot of people the wrong way um this but person. <laughs> there you go. Um, Zazel Jacobs, kind of an inter interesting filmmaker. He's the son of Ken Jacobs, um, very influential and uh, acclaimed experimental filmmaker um, with very much his own voice doing something 100 or completely different from what his parents do um, that I I thought was, was very interesting, um, very flawed at, at certain points. Maybe I'll talk about that later. But um, yeah, French Exit, I think still worth seeking out. Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer is very fun in it, um, despite all the flaws that I found with the film. Um, that's one of maybe my first trip back to theaters this year. Um, oh, really? Nice. Exit. Um, yeah. On to number eight. What's your number eight? My number eight, Michael, is a small film called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. This is one I've seen. Oh. <laughs> I'm Star, short for Starbra. Assume yours is Barbara. Nope, just Barb. Plain old Barb. I want to thank Barb and Star for hosting tonight's Talking Club and for making their hot dog soup. I like the salt. I like the hot dog. It's not as runny as it usually is. She's oh, she gives me bigger teeth. Love big teeth. She loves big teeth. Even if it's just two eyes on a bunch of teeth. This is one that I think a lot of people have seen. This is one that I think a lot of people uh, either really gravitated towards or really disliked, as you'd mentioned with French Exit. I think it did rub a lot of mm. uh, sensibilities the wrong way with its type of comedy. It's a very dry... Um, witty patter type of dialogue comedy. It's not set up punchline joke so much as recurring gag motif style choices and just um, absurdity. Um, and 
you know, there's there's not much comedy coming out these days. And so when a serious comedy does come out, I think I, I do cherish it more than any other type of genre because of how rare it is that a, a good comedy comes out. And I would underline the word good here for Barb and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar. It is a good comedy. It's a revisitable comedy. Like Anchorman, it's something that in five years you will make a joke from the line of and maybe forget where you got that joke from. And then maybe 10 years from now, you'll turn it back on and go, man, this is just a great one. And there's there's really in a, a decreasing amount, I think, from when we were, um, you know, in the 2000s and the 90s of the level of comedy coming out now. Um, I think maybe right when we graduated was like super bad and, um, you know, just this this great um, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen kind of surgence of comedy from this one group of guys for American um, comedy and then Borat was coming out at that time but then it's been really um, you know middle since then I guess Tropic Thunder was probably right in that range so it's kind of interesting for me to look at it from like a film history standpoint where it's like where are the good comedies and when you find one you really want to hold it up and, and say you got to go to Vista Del Mar to visit Barf and Star um, this is directed by Josh Greenbaum not really notable for um its direction so much as um, it's impressive that it doesn't ever mess with itself. I think he'd previously done a couple documentaries and that really shows up with just kind of, you know, getting everything in the right spot and then letting it go. A lot of the choreography I think is, is really um, superb, maybe the best choreography of the year. Um, and our star is uh, Kristen Wiig and Anna Mumolo and Anna, Annie also, uh, wrote the the film and produced it so i i would just cement her as a, a treasure of filmmaking um and voices do you have anything you want to say since you did see it oh very funny movie i mean easily the best comedy i've seen all this year i think i've only seen like a few it just yeah just to reiterate you said they're they're just they just feel like they are a few and far between so you have to cherish the good comedies that come along these days this is definitely one of them and i think this might be the last produced sanchez film i'm not positive on that but i do know that um farrell and mckay are kind of dissolving the the um gary sanchez productions and the gloria sanchez productions Mm. um deals that they had and like refocusing stuff so um, you know, this might signal kind of the end of an era that brought us mm. Casa de Padre and Anchorman mm. and all that stuff. Yeah, definitely feels like it's uh, could have just as easily come out five years ago or ten years ago and just fit right in among those for 100%. sure. So if you liked Bridesmaids, which Annie also wrote, Joy from Aronofsky, which she also wrote, Megan Levy, which she also wrote, then maybe give Barb and Star a try. I think you'll you enjoy your trip to Vista Del Mar. There you go. I like it. What is your number eight, Michael? My number eight is called The Disciple. Bharatiya Shastriya Sangeetala Margi Sangeet Ugeets Nai Manat It's an Indian film. The, the director's name is Chaitanya Tamhani. 
uh, I think it's the only film, it, yeah, it's definitely the only film on my list that you can currently stream on Netflix. I, I can't believe I ended up actually getting a Netflix movie on here. Um, I have heard some people call this like an Indian whiplash, which I kind of get. It is about a um, man trying to pursue excellence in regards to his musical craft. He is a, uh, he practices a classical form of um, Indian singing. I think it's called Hindustani. And we uh, kind of meet him in his, I want to say, 20s or so, as he um, is already kind of in the midst of um, honing his craft and trying to um, become one of the greats. Um, we see some of his childhood in flashbacks, and then we follow him in middle age. There is a cut at a certain point that leaps us forward in time, so we end up really seeing kind of a whole lifetime, which is not much of a spoiler to say that it's kind of about, about someone who doesn't really make it and what that um, looks and feels like. Um, it's very much about him coming to a point where he's sort of questioning the tension between wanting to um, uh, pursue more commercial opportunities versus excellence in this tradition. He has always um, valued so deeply and he comes to kind of um, start to interrogate what what all is wrapped up in that tradition and what's what's authentic or not authentic about it. Um, so content wise, I think I've I get some of the whiplash comparisons, but that have been thrown out there. Pace wise, I don't see it at all. This is a very contemplative, rather slow paced film, where like much of the performances start with the camera quite far back and zoom in very slowly over the course of a whole performance um, until it kind of arrives close to his face and you see him processing his own kind of performance as he does it. Um, really, really uh, compelling filmmaking. Um, and it's on Netflix, so easily watchable. It's called The Disciple. Awesome. I wish I had the sneeze because when you were talking about the uh, the zooming in, I just really wanted to go, Ah Chong Sang Su. <laughs> oh, much much slower zooms for sure. Yeah, yeah. but still, I, I'm fresh off of Sang Su, and man, does he like to zoom in and then zoom out in the same oh, scene? He loves the zoom, that's for sure. Um, all right, Michael, we are on to ensembles. My ensemble at this midpoint in the year is an HBO Max film directed by Steven Soderbergh by the name of No Sudden Move. To no surprise of anyone. Soderbergh is going to appear in this list. Um, the ensemble here is headlined by Don Cheadle. Uh, co-star is going to be Benicio Del Toro. And then we have a lot of other players. David Harbour, who many know from Stranger Things, but was just in Black Widow. The always uh, memorable Ray Liotta. John Hamm. Brendan Fraser. Kieran Culkin. Amy Seamitz. Julia Fox. Frankie Shaw. Noah Jupe, Bill Duke. It's a who's who of great actors, and each of them are distinctive in their um, vision of who they are within the film and, and what they're signifying. Um, it's obviously debatable, but if you interpret the film um, as I have, you, you definitely see a lot of undercurrents of racism and classism and all sorts of things. And that's really passively told with the way that certain characters are shown, portrayed, addressed, um, told to behave in front of the camera. It's very much a, a cinemascope-esque 
style uh, film. So it's very wide. And when you have this much talent packed into a film, it certainly helps to have a wide lens. Got to get all those people in there. Exactly. Naturally. That is a brief uh, conversation about a film that we will talk about at a later time. On to your ensemble choice. My ensemble choice is French Exit, which I've already talked about, so I'll keep it kind of brief. I didn't really describe the movie's story previously, but it's about Michelle Pfeiffer and her her character and, uh, and her, her son and her husband, who is dead, played by Tracy no, he's Letts. Not. He's dead. <laughs> uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character and her son, played by Lucas Hedges, burn through all their cash. She's like a wealthy socialite, and they move from New York City to Paris to... Uh, live in a friend's place. Um, yeah, the ensemble has yeah Michelle Pfeiffer, Lucas Hedges, Imogen Poots. One actress I really liked was named Valerie Mahaffey. Um, yeah, while this movie like tips into some like some of the territory of like the occult at certain points with a cat that may or may not uh, contain the spirit of a character who had passed away. Yeah. I don't think much of that specifically works at all, but in terms of this as an ensemble piece, um, you know, there is a way in which everyone in this movie is delivering their dialogue with the very particular precision and carefulness that I think invites out and keeps bringing the word literary to mind. Um, and the way everyone on this movie is just so on the same page and is so, um, uh, just so game for what for what this um, movie is going for in its its delivery, I think is is very cool. I think that's actually some makes for some pretty impressive direction that everyone is really um, so aligned in how exactly they are approaching their characters with a certain kind of precision. Uh, but yeah, that's French Exit. All right, Michael, on to our number sevens. What's your number seven? My number seven is a documentary film that premiered at Sundance earlier this year by the name of Sabaya. I can't remember if we'd already talked about this briefly uh, in person or not, but um, I guess for the listeners, I will also give a breakdown of the film rather than just you. It is a uh, junior film effort from director Hogir Harori, and it is a harrowing one. Um, the description of the film, which I think puts it better than I will be able to, is with just a mobile phone and a gun, Mahmoud, Ziad, and their group risk their lives trying to save Yazidi women and girls being held by ISIS as Sabaya, abducted sex slaves in the most dangerous camp in the Middle East, Al-Hol in Syria. That is an accurate description of the film. It's almost impossible to imagine being a documentary filmmaker behind the lines with this group of men and their family who are risking it all in a really, um, you know, old pickup truck in the back. They're driving into the, the center of the storm to go find these girls that have been kidnapped and 
and bring them back to their home where they will slowly um, try to help them reacclimate to not being abused, owned, and treated like cattle, but rather as a person, and then eventually trying to bring them back to their loved ones and their families. It is um, at once enraging and depressing, but also hopeful and joyous in the sense that, that there's there's a family out there with literally like nothing compared to you know first world standards, and they're spending all their time, their effort, and their energy to go save women and girls from hell, essentially. And they're not doing it for money. They're not doing it for even honor or anything. They're just doing it because it seems right to them at some foundational level. And they have their own family. They have, uh, they live with the mother and they have a wife and they have kids. And all those people are helping these girls that they save be restored together. And you're watching them put in just as much effort homemaking and taking care of the young girls and cleaning and giving them a sense of purpose and distracting them with with home life it's it's a truly incredible documentary film i don't think i've seen anything close to this recently and i i don't know when it's going to come out but i think it is a very important film which i i use delicately but i i really do think that in this case it is so it does sound harrowing to do this on the right day, that's for sure. Definitely. What is your number seven, Michael? My number seven is Undine. Undine. Christian Petzold, German filmmaker. We talked about this last year when we talked about movies from the Vancouver International Film Festival and the New York Film Festival. I think it was playing at both at the Mm -hmm. time. Those festivals kind of more or less overlapped. Um, I listened, I was going back and listening to a little bit of what I said on that episode about Undine, and I realized. I, I, I regret not expressing more enthusiasm for this movie at the time, and I think I was too stuck in the mindset of comparing this just to Christian Petzold's previous es- effort, which was Transit, which came out just the year before. Which I really love that movie, and I still think that Undine's probably not as good as Transit, but then, you know, taking stock of where we are at this point in the year, there's no question that this is still one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Um, I think it's just really cool uh kind of mixture of kind of mundane realism with fairy tale fantasy um same actors as transit paula beer and franz rogowski she plays this historian who lectures on berlin's um urban development he's an industrial sea diver like right away just the professions alone are like ones that like you don't normally see in movies that like just catches my attention um and there's a, a romance of sorts develops between them after she breaks off a relationship with another man. Um, I, I, I think it's just a totally unique mode that he is working in and how he brings out these really kind of 
you know, old ideas, like, you know, things related to the myths of the Undine and brings them into these really modern, urban, contemporary contexts. Um, that's just, that's just totally unique. I think that's, I think they're super interesting. Um, and I think it's very romantic. I, one of the funnier tweets I saw about this movie was somebody saying, find yourself a person who looks at you the way Franz Rogowski looks at Paula Beer when she's talking about the history of urban development in Germany. And it's so true. Like it's, it's arguably like so boring what she's talking about from a certain perspective, but he is looking at her in this movie with such fondness and affection and love. Um, I think pencils is very much a romantic um, and he puts it in these really kind of oddly mundane context. Um, I think super cool. So that's Undine and that is uh, available on VOD now for rental. In purchase, I guess. I completely endorse this, as I loved that film last year as well. All right, Michael, we are on to the supporting actor-actress category. And my first selection here is going to be Daniel Kaluuya from the film Judas and the Black Messiah. This is a film that is on HBO Max, as I understand it. It also had a brief theatrical release early on. But this is a title that we're actually going to have the introduction to from one of our team members, Alexander Reams. So let's hear what he had to say about this performance. Hello, my name is Alexander Reams. I'm currently based in North Carolina. And I'm going to be introducing Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, the best sporting actor on Taylor Baker's list. The film is about the attempted capture of Black Panther chairman Fred Hampton, portrayed by Kaluuya, and the rat, Judas, who turned over Hampton to the FBI, played by Lakeith Stanfield. Now, Lakeith's, the film is mostly from Lakeith Stanfield's point of view, with most of us not learning a lot about Fred Hampton who he is as a person, more about O'Neill, However, it's still riveting nonetheless. Kaluuya has already won the Oscar for Best Sporting Actor thanks to the Academy's extended guidelines and release date lines for films that were released during the COVID-19 pandemic. Kaluuya's win was absolutely deserved. The nuances that he brought to Chairman Fred were clearly a sign of his greatness as an actor and how much he has grown since his breakout role in Jordan Peele's Get Out, for which he was also nominated for Best Actor. His performance physically affected me. By the end of the film, I was tearing up because his story is so sad. His life was cut off far too shortly by people who wanted to suppress his voice, and the film clearly let you know its thoughts on that, but also in a smart way to where you don't feel as if you're getting beaten over the head with a sledgehammer, and a lot of that is thanks to Daniel Kaluuya's performance. The quieter moments with his lover Dominique Fishback in the film, to the loud moment, particularly when he is released from prison, and the scene that was shown all throughout the Oscar season and in the trailer, I am a revolutionary and the church scene was just absolutely riveting and is definitely the best supporting actor of 2021 so far. 
All right, Michael. I think that I agree with just about everything Alexander said there, if not every single thing. Um, it never hurts for me to be in the same um, ballpark, uh, ideology, thoughtfulness as the Oscars themselves. You know, that gives a little bit more credence um, to some of my selections. So it doesn't hurt that he did win that supporting um, Oscar. I do think that, you know, um, there's a couple things that, that I would want to mention. Um, first being, I think right when Get Out came out, Jordan was lamenting how little people understood of Kaluuya's range and talent. And I think that this is one of the first times since Get Out that we, we really got a, a good look at that. Um, the second would be building on that, his physicality in this performance. I, I believe he gained a, a fairly significant amount of weight and he, he, clearly acts as if he has that weight, whether it was um, added to his frame or, or he was wearing it. I'm not sure um, with his um, background for preparing for the performance, but he looks like a totally different person than the kid in Get Out Here. And mm. we're only two years later shooting-wise, three years later shooting-wise, and it's just a totally different look. I, I really think that he has the possibility of doing what Christian Bale has done with morphing his body and showing his talent as an actor by becoming a chameleon and fitting the role and making himself be the character rather than bringing the same actor to the same movie, no offense, Nicolas Cage, every time and playing a different version of himself. Yeah, so this movie's in a weird spot having already won stuff at the Oscars, but it premiered in 2021. It came out in 2021. It's like the only time the Oscars are like ahead of list making among mm -hmm. critics. Very odd, but yeah, good, great uh, acting, for this sure. This is another Sundance film in my, yeah. my list. Uh, I think that's by far the most um, important festival, that, or useful festival that I've attended this year. What is your supporting actor or actress that you want to start with? Uh, supporting actor is really category fraud on my part. He's arguably kind of a co-lead, but it's Jeremy Renier from Slalom, which I already mentioned a little bit. Uh, he's probably best known for some of his work with the Dardens, or at least that's how I mm -hmm. tend to think of him. He was in movies like Kid with the Bike and The Promise. Um, which we talked about at length. We did on a Dardens-focused episode. Check that one out. That's a good one. Um... But yeah, you know, like I mentioned, he is the character in Slalom who is putting this teenage girl in a deeply troubling position as he, you know, wields a certain degree of power over her as her coach, um, her skiing coach. Um, you know, these are just the kinds of roles that um, can very easily just become a little bit too villain-ish, um, too sort of unambiguously cruel, but I think he remains very human throughout this whole film, which is a very focused character study as someone who um, is... Um, just deeply flawed and deeply uh, misguided in what he's doing. Um, he's a very solid performer. I'd like to see him uh, even more than we do. Um, it's Jeremy Renier in Slalom. Who is your favorite supporting actress so far? My favorite supporting actress is Beatrice Dalet from the mm. film Lex Eterna. I think that she's probably best known to film fans as the star of a film called Betty Blue from 1986. She's done a various assortment of other films that are kind of off people's radars. The, the largest one other than that would probably be Night on Earth in 1991. Um, 
which I think she plays a supporting role in. But here, again, she plays a supporting role. However, it's a big role because she is the director of the film being shot within the film Lux Eterna. Um, She opens the film in her own square frame beside another square frame frame that has uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character. They're each uh, aptly titled within the film, a, a very creative original uh, title for the cast, uh, Beatrice and, and Charlotte. <laughs> this continues to Carl Guzman as Carl and, and every actor as being named after themselves. And she is um, playing the director of a film that is um, not ever really coherently described in any way other than sexy witches and being crucified as sexy and Beatrice kind of explaining why she finds all this stuff sexy. Uh, I think in 2018, she famously said um, that she really likes Christ because he was the original guy that got into bondage or something to that effect. Mm. You know, like she, she's very, um, very no way in, in her sensibility as a person and her um, vocality and maybe eccentrism. Um, but her performance here is just completely convinced. You never doubt for a moment that she is who she is, that she was an actress, and that this is her first film, and that she really does want to connect on these armchairs with um, Charlotte at the beginning of the film, and and just how upset and um, slippery the film continues to get, and how angry she is and how annoyed she is by the camera following her constantly and all these men working against her which which really underlines this monologue she delivers at the beginning um there's probably more juicy performances but as far as a performance that really is central to a film working um from a supporting actress i i really just i can't stop thinking about this one compared to any other so far this year yeah, Beatrice Dahl is someone who I think is like slowly within maybe just this past year even like become one of my favorite actresses. I would think like among cinephiles, she's maybe best known for her work with Claire Denis. Uh, like she's the lead in uh, Trouble Every Day, Denis' take on like the vampire movie. She's in The Intruder. Um, and, you know, it's funny that quote about bondage, I think, is uh, uh, sort of connects with her work with Denis because Claire Denis is so interested, you know, all things corporeal and the physical body. Um, and Betty Blue is, is great. I think that one, I think sometimes criticized for her being kind of like the manic pixie dream girl there, but if anyone's going to do it, it's her. Um, <laughs> she's great. And that's, uh, Lux Eterna one is one I would really like to rewatch. Um, at some point. Yeah. I think if anybody has the backbone to play Manic Pixie Dream Girl and not be it, it's also mm. her. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, Michael. Who is your favorite supporting actress so far? I have Molly Gordon from Shiva Baby, which is She's good. a film that really had like kind of a splashy debut, I feel like. I think this has gotten a lot of buzz. Uh, Shiva Baby, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's debut film. Uh, Emma Seligman is the director's name. Um, we mainly focus on um, a young girl attending a Shiva um, and uh, all the kind of um, awkwardness that ensues when our lead's uh, sugar daddy is in attendance at this Shiva and there's all kinds of social awkwardness and tension. But Molly Gordon is the like ex-girlfriend of our lead character who I think 
man, there's one other movie that's escaping me that she was in. Oh, wait, I think it was Booksmart that she also mm-hmm. had a small role in. Um, she's always just catching my eye as someone who I think is super funny. And I don't, she, she just kind of has it. I don't know that I have that much more to say about this yeah. one. I'll keep it brief. Many, many people have seen Shiva Baby at this point. I really like that movie. Um, I think she's very funny. Very good. Uh, that's Molly Gordon. Great comedic screen presence. The camera really wants to spend time with her. She really draws. Yeah. Um, all right, Michael. On to number six. We're halfway there almost. What is your number six? My number six is a film that I opened talking about. The 40-year-old version. How are you? Good. Archie tells me you're teaching. How's somebody who ain't had no real hit gonna tell me how to write a play? She ain't no Tyler Perry. I did win a 30 under 30 award. Yes, it was quite a couple of years ago. What do I gotta do? Write a slave musical, an all white play? This some bullshit. It rang a little inauthentic. I asked myself, did a black person really write this? This some fucking bullshit, bullshit. Think about me doing hip hop. Doing what to it? I want to make a mixtape about the 40-year-old woman's point of view. Why my skin so dry? Why am I yawning right now? Why them AARP niggas sending shit to my house? This is 40. From Rada Blank, who, as I mentioned, directed, wrote, stars, produced the film. It is a story about a woman who is middle-aged, doesn't really like her career, doesn't really view her career as a career so much as a job, um, and she's looking to pursue these artistic passions um, the same as her mother, and she's realizing that the artistic passion that she was going for maybe isn't the one that she wants to pursue anymore, and she becomes interested in um, turning her poetry into rap and becoming a rapper in a um in a maybe a a reverse order to the common story of rap where you you know for her it's she's lived a a long life and she's come from artists and she's she's lost a parent and she has uh estranged relationships and she has done poetry and all sorts of art and now she's finding rap as maybe a cohesive way of, of channeling all of that and I think it's a, a really touching, beautiful um, story at its core, but it's also just immaculately constructed. It's so carefully and tenuously created, and every emotional beat, she really understands what's going on there. It feels like a play. It feels like someone spent years running through this and finding all the weak spots and just ironing those out. And even though it's over two hours, it doesn't ever have a moment that you feel like you can really cut and still get the full character trajectory. And I think that's the sign of a a very talented playwright who's willing to kill all their darlings, but actually understands their source material and keeps everything that works to build a cohesive vision. And I don't think that there's any directorial debut that I've seen in the last two years, I'll include 2020, that offers a more exciting future for a writer-director than this one. And the fact that she can act and produce too is just gravy. But as a writer-director, I think this is by far away the most promising talent that we've encountered. And this is on Netflix. Easy to watch. It's a good one. 
All right, Michael, what is your number six? My number six is The Woman Who Ran. Which is another film from Hong Sang-soo, who was on my list last year as well. The always prolific Hong Sang-soo. This is his 24th feature, if I'm not mistaken. Um... It's played at the New York Film Festival last year and I think some of the European festivals, but it just came out this week um, and it plays Seattle's uh, Northwest Film Forum next week. So the time is now to talk about The Woman Who Ran. Um, I don't think I'm the first person to say that. I think this is one of Hong Sing Su's more accessible movies. He's very often um, talked about for his kind of like structural and narrative tricks and gambits. Um, this is I think one of his more narratively straightforward movies, um, Kim Min-hee, one of his regulars, plays a woman who is um, married, and when her husband goes on a business trip, she goes and has these uh, different encounters with old old friends. Um, I think it's kind of roughly divided into three different encounters, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and so it's sort of a three-chapter film. I could use some of the same descriptors that I used for Short Vacation to describe this a little bit. It's very low-key. Um, it's quite naturalistic in the dialogue. I think it's like some Hong Sang-soo movies, pleasurable just for its kind of um, interest in the nuance and subtleties of uh, human conversation. Here it's particularly interested in women and Women who are all kind of in different places in their lives romantically. They're all uh, kind of talking about their um, uh, relationship statuses. This is not one that passes the Beckdale test by any stretch. But I think it's a very, very elegant uh, movie. And uh, that comes out, and is out some places right now, comes out soon uh, in other places. That's The Woman Who Rang. I think it's one of the smartest titles. Of the year. Oh, I, I do like this title quite a bit. I, I think that it works at many different levels that are arguable, and that that is, yeah, one of the best translations for any of his films, probably, in the title. Cool. <clears throat> All right. Let's get on to our directorial debut favorites of the year. I will go first. All right, so my directorial debut choice is also my number five here michael so i'm gonna just do a, a longer double dip and we're gonna talk about sophia koppel again and the film that she stars in pleasure directed by nina thyberg coming out hopefully later this year after it was acquired at a 24 at sundance this is easily my second favorite film that played at sundance um the other being Next, um, my number four. I also can't wait to talk about that one. This is a, um, I think I've already said it, but you have to say it again. It's an acerbic, 
witty criticism. It's um, a very self-aware film that knows what it's doing and how um, it's viewed socially to do what it's doing, which is talk about pornography and sex work and all that stuff. It has um, uh, porn industry professionals in the film. Um, it's almost entirely made up of of people that work in the adult industry other than um, Koppel herself as far as who's starring in the film. Um, I think they attended real um, award shows and stuff. I think it was called the AVN. Um, the adult vid- adult video, I don't know what the N would be for, um, awards, but it um, is not something that you've ever really seen before in film. I guess Sean Baker does have Red Rocket coming out, so, hmm. you know, th- this might be more of the beginning of a cresting wave rather than um, a single wave lapping on the shore that, that is shallow. Um, it, I it's hard for me to talk about the contents of the film, number one, because of the explicit quality that it has, and mm-hmm. number two, because it would give a large portion of listeners a spoiler. Um, and unlike 40-year-old version, this hasn't been sitting around on Netflix for a year. So I will say that there there's a character arc here that is disturbing to watch for the viewer, but not disturbing for the person that's going through it. And that, that strength of character is really what keeps the film from ever getting too disgusting, I guess. Because there are certainly moments that in in other hands would be treated as, as if it was a grotesque moment. But here it is all business. And, um, you know, they're, they're squirting lubricant just as often as they're washing their hands and they're talking about, um, you know tests just as often as they're driving cars it's a it's a very um kind of an la film that is very european in its sensibility about its openness to talk about sex and its willingness to put a female voice to a industry that you know pays women the most that arguably spends the most screen time probably with women than men and it's a but it's a male constructed industry and it it really does take what i think is a feminist viewpoint and really showcases that in a brilliant way that is witty and criticizing i i have to imagine this will be much discussed when it does eventually uh come out i expect so i hope (laughs) that i'm not um on the other side of a, a loaded barrel and that um, most of the rest of the film community does enjoy this one because it will be very hard to defend if it's largely disliked. Mm, yeah, makes sense. What is your favorite debut of the year? I think I'll just wait and just uh, skip this section because I have it in my number one slot at the moment. And let's just save it. All right, let's save it and get to your number five. My number five is about endlessness. Det är inte fantastiskt ändå. Lika tår. Allt. Allt. Allt är fantastiskt. Det har jag.
This is from Roy Anderson, the Swedish filmmaker. Uh, this is out now on VOD. Um, it's a very interesting movie in that it doesn't have much of a traditional narrative arc. This is really a series of vignettes, each of which have a very dioramic kind of quality to them. Um, I think most of the vignettes in this movie are shot in single takes. If anyone has seen a Roy Anderson movie, this if anyone has seen a Roy Anderson movie before, I don't think they would be surprised by the aesthetic here, um, which color-wise is very gray and white. It's kind of like, it almost has this kind of... Um, gloomy snow globe like aesthetic that almost feels a little bit silent cinema like um we meet different citizens of this kind of gray gloomy city as they experience different um indignities absurdities little sufferings of human life with occasional grace notes um it is uh you know very much about people uh dealing with life's tragedies and um and their troubles in this very deadpan kind of tragic comic tone. Um, he's a really interesting director, I think, for how he approaches some really, really bleak subject matter with this really, at the end of the day, black comic um, touch uh, that can be really funny and very much with moments of hope. Um, you know, we see people in this movie like soldiers marching off to their death. We also see a group of teenagers uh, erupting into dance when they hear a song they come on like for no apparent reason. Um, very much an art film, but I think it's meticulously shot. It's all uh, constructed within Roy Anderson's own studio. And I think most of the like backgrounds are painted um, really, really beautiful. Um, and for something that feels like it's about, really big ideas like, um, you know, the, the natural suffering that life involves. It's only an hour and 18 minutes. I actually think it goes by very quickly. I would not describe this as a slog whatsoever, despite some of the heaviness of its material. Um, really beautiful stuff. That's about endlessness available for rental now. That's my, um, the killing of two lovers for you, where it's just like, I've, wanted to sit down and watch this movie so many times mm. and i just always find a way to talk myself out of it i just go to my oh you're gonna have to read for you know a while it you mm. know it's gonna take a while for you to land in it you might have to restart the film after you finally get acclimated you know it's it's one that i've been meaning to see but continue to talk my way out of so maybe i will now yeah i guess i should say that like a good number of films on my list are foreign language movies i have a couple that are english language but none of these are even like remotely like sorkin ish movies right i think if anything just generally i lean towards things that are less dense with dialogue so there is only so much dialogue to even read in some of these movies if that encourages anybody who is, is struggling with, with with subtitles um one of my picks on here doesn't have any dialogue at all so don't don't let the fact that it's foreign like steer you uh, uh, right. off from it. For me, it's not that it's foreign. It's that well, we just got done with work, and now we're going to go work out. And then, is there really bandwidth to properly interpret a film where you have to read it and view it at the same time? That's normally where I get my hang up. So mm. I'll, gotcha, I'll make gotcha. sure I get to it before the end of the year. Cool. Um, on to OSTs. 
my favorite soundtrack of the year, Michael, you're well aware of, and that is Nicholas Bertel's score for the Underground Railroad. I think it has one of the most memorable uh, themes so far of the year. It's got a great violent string theme that really crescendos and kind of triplets, just bam, 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 then kind of a, a lull with with some nice um, undertones and then back to the bam, bam, bam. And um, I just, I mean, we've talked about Bertel before. He's, you know, working with Barry Jenkins again here. He's underlining dramatic moments, great scenes, um, building a sense of dread where we don't quite know how to feel yet due to the genius um, acting from some of these actresses um, and actors. Joel Edgerton is... Um, a very interesting character arc that I think the music really informs here. Um, and then I'll talk more about Thiso um, later. But my favorite soundtrack of the year by far is Nicholas Bertel's score for The Underground Railroad. get your number five pick right did we somehow we did. Skip? it was a double debut oh. and number five was pleasure got it got it that's right i thought we had scott off track we're good we're good back to me for ost then yeah back to you for OST. favorite music of the year um i what i have in this slot my favorite soundtrack of the year favorite score of the year is from zola which uh, was done by mika levy um i think the sound of this movie has been much talked about because this you know, film story was born out of a Twitter thread and it very much has, you know, these internet, uh, these, these sounds that are evocative of the internet, like the sounds of tweets and that kind of thing. Um, to me, it's striking just because of how different of a kind of score this is from what we normally get from Mika Levy, which, you know, I feel like she's best known for stuff like her work in Under the Skin um, or Jackie, which are really like scores with a real sense of dread latent deep yeah, in them. Um, deep yeah. And this is something that almost leads a little bit more towards like irony at times than something very sincere. Um, you know, there are sounds in here that sound like little like jewelry boxes almost. There's something very innocent about it. And this is movie very much about girls who um, uh, are very much shedding their innocence in a certain way, or maybe, maybe you could argue something like that. Um, just a totally different kind of sound from I think we what we have come to expect from Mika Levy, which just goes to show I think the range she has um, as a composer and is just still definitely one of the best uh, we have I think working today. Uh, so that's Zola for best score of the year.
weird story about how me and this bitch here fell out. It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. This is another Sundance film that is not yet available widely, but I believe just went through a brief theatrical release and might still be playing in like LA and New York. That is Theo Anthony's All Light Everywhere. So we're going to do some calibration exercises. To begin, just look forward on the screen and just follow my direction. Relax. Close your eyes. Keep them closed. Relax. I believe God sees everything and that he not only sees where you are, but also what you're doing and what you're thinking. The point is to ensure that everyone is acting in a professional manner as always. These kids don't care about no camera. They know they're being watched. We will be talking about our favorite. Did we already talk about favorite documentary? I think that's yet to come. We will be talking about favorite documentary in one more. So I'll just double up here. And talk about All Light Everywhere forever. And say... Um, so that there's a bit of a motif, I think, to some of my selections here. Which is the, the way that we're viewing um, stories. And then by the end, kind of having that be reframed. Or films that are examining how we're framing um, what we value in our minds. I think that the 40-year-old version does that. I think Pleasure does that with, with an acerbic criticism. I think that The Killing of Two Lovers does that by twisting things on its head. I have a, another film coming up um, at number one that we've already mentioned that, that does that. And I, I think that All Light Everywhere is one of the few documentaries that really shows a self-examination of the documentarian himself and how he is coloring his films with his own ideology, with his own belief structure, with his own camera, with his own light source, and how his entire background is coloring the film to be different but also trying to play chess essentially against himself and say, this is what I think, what is the opposite think? And then he's just trying to capture that. And even if he can't capture it right, he's trying to explain the synopsis uh, of the basic uh, hypothesis that he's asking and let you look at him try to solve it. And I don't think that he does. I don't think that you can. But I think that the entire endeavor is really beautiful and, and just a, a stunning... Uh, hypothesis for a documentarian to take a a really endeavoring journey to try to look for 
any version of truth and how different people experience different truths and have different basic realities that you can't tap into and just trying to collect that. It starts out with a look at Axon, which is the rebranded name of the company Taser, which serves for most, if not, I, I think you could say all, but it's not technically true, but you, in general, all police forces for their body cams and their um, non-lethal weapons. And it just starts in their office spaces with a very harrowing look. And then we end up in community centers in Baltimore where they're debating whether or not there should be an eye in the sky capturing photos at the street level. It's philosophically deep um, at a broad social level. It's also philosophically deep at a very particular level. And it has all these different asides to the history of observing light, the history of observing and recording things um, through images and the troubling past that that itself has and how these all work because it's all constructed um, technology for largely from one particular group of people who are making these pieces of technology, not from another. Um, and it, it doesn't pass judgment. It just tries to show. And I, I think that there are certain scenes that speak for themselves where they test out axon gear, where it, it's hard not to take away, um, a certain type of message. At least I did about that is very troubling, but I, I do think that he didn't, um, at no point does he force it. He shows it to you and kind of smirks to see it. it you, you can see him smirking through the film. And um, if you agree with him, it might be charming. If you disagree, it probably won't. Uh, this is definitely my favorite documentary of the year. This is one of my favorite films of the year. This is one of my favorite documentaries of the the last decade. It's, it's a truly incredible film, and I think everyone should watch it once it's available. That's All Light Everywhere, directed by Theo Anthony, previously did rap film. Good movie, too. Great movie. Yeah, this is one I'm definitely still chewing on. It's been a few weeks now since I saw it. I'm still, try- I'm still wrestling with it a little bit, but I'm, but I'm a fan as well, for sure. It's very dense. I, I would like to rewatch it. Yeah. Uh, cool. Oh, Where right, are we Michael? at? What is your number four? My number four is called Friends and Strangers. If a man had stolen a pound in his youth and had used that pound to amass a huge fortune, how much was he obliged to give back? A pound he'd stolen only, or the pound together with the compound interest accruing upon it, or all his huge fortune? Hmm. What do you think? Which is directed by a filmmaker named, named James Vaughn. He's an Australian filmmaker. Uh, it's his debut film. If I have this right, he first made a short film like four or five years ago before this feature came out. So he has kind of an interesting career path, if I have that right, and there's not any intervening work. Um, this uh, played at New Directors New Films earlier this year, and it is um, probably going to turn off anyone who is just tired of the kind of thing where you're seeing like 20-something-year-olds 
who are kind of aimless and purposeless in their lives, not quite sure, knowing what it is that they want to do. And even if they did know, they probably couldn't articulate it very well. Um, some people, I think, are just tired of that kind of thing right now, which is a little bit mumblecore-ish. That subgenre kind of came to mind. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that could maybe work. Um, I've seen a lot of people kind of talk about this in reference to uh, Hong Sang-soo and Eric Romare, but... Narratively, um, we start out with a young man and a young woman in Sydney who are both recently out of breakups. Like I said, they're probably in their 20s. They go on this little camping trip together. Um, the young guy is clearly interested in the girl, and he makes some fumbling attempts to to flirt and kind of connect with her. It's this very sort of absurdist uh, comic tone that it strikes in the first 30, 40 minutes or so. Very funny, really strikingly shot with just some really interesting kind of like canted angles of Sydney that make it feel kind of alien or something like that. It's just really immediately interesting in its place setting. And then 30 or 40 minutes into the movie, it takes a total right turn and we lose one of the characters that we've been following and we stick with the male character and we learn a little bit more about him specifically. We learn he's a videographer, and we follow him on this uh, trip to a client's house where he's going to be filming his client's daughter's wedding. And that tone carries through this kind of absurdism um, with a little bit of dread somewhere that you're not even really sure what to attribute to. There's this very funny device where they're at a house for most of the film and they hear music coming over into their house from the next door neighbors, which is this very unsettling music, which has this impact on the scene as we watch it. But there is this kind of diegetic reason for it within the film, which has this just really interesting effect. Um, and yeah, so it, that's kind of the territory it's in. What makes it extra interesting is that there's also this kind of attention to kind of like key Australian landmarks around Sydney that sort of um, reflect um, uh, different aspects of Australian history that, you know, um, serve as reminders of it as a former British colony. And it's sort of tricky to figure out what this movie is, is doing with that. Like, is it something about these 20-something-year-olds being too distracted with their own problems to sort of... Um, pay any attention to their own history? Is it something about these characters trying to find their own identity with Australia still, you know, in some way missing its missing some sense of identity? They're just really totally unique um, kinds of things that's it's doing storytelling wise. Um, so that's coming out later this year from Grasshopper, and that's called Friends and Strangers. I'll have to seek it out. All right, Michael, we are on to actor and actress. In a lead role, our favorites of the year. I'll get us started by talking about a fellow that I've already waxed poetic about a little bit, being Clayne Crawford, who plays the lead in the film The Killing of Two Lovers. Um, people probably know him best from the, um, I think it was a Sundance television show called Rectify, as well as, um, uh, what would it be? The big three channels, one of them, maybe Fox. He was uh, playing the Mel Gibson role for Lethal Weapon, the television adaptation. Mm -hmm. And um, he had directed some of those episodes as well as um, some other television. He's a, a very um, kind of nuts and bolts actor where, you know, he's just going to do what the guy would do. And then 
um, kind of work through the emotions organically in front of the camera. Um, and I really, really like that. I respond very highly to senses of uh, real, original emotion that someone's going through. The side effect of that can be claims of a toxic workplace or, you know, yeah. violence or, you know, argumentative um, type of situations, which is famously why Lethal Weapon was canceled. And um, there were lawsuits filed and everything because of his style as a director and actor and his, mm. his uh, brutishness, you could say. But you also get the sense that if uh, Cassavetes wasn't yet gone, this is a guy that, that would have worked well with him. You know, that this is a, a real, um, I, I guess, bravado style actor where he's, he's going to go feel the emotion in front of everyone. And we all have to reckon with that, including him. And, it doesn't, he doesn't need to be macho. He doesn't need to be, um, heroic. He, you know, a lot of actors, you know, would, would have things rewritten or reframed so that they look heroic or they look good. And this is a guy that's willing to take a beating, but he'll only do it if it serves the, the purpose and he can map onto it and really get there. And I just keep, whenever I see him, I just keep falling in love with him as a performer. And I think that there's no better performance by an actor that has to do as much as this. I think Cheadle and No Sudden Move is great. There, there's a lot of other actors that I think are great, but I think that what he's doing here is is really the word art. Cool stuff. I like it. Who is your selection for actor? I have the lead from a movie I already talked about, which was The Disciple. The lead actor in that movie is Aditya Modak. Um, won't rehash too much of what I said about The Disciple, except that this movie... It's sort of impressive for how he has to, you know, embody this character over a, quite a long period of time. Um, he, you know, we meet, we meet him in his 20s, like I said. When we make that jump forward in time, he suddenly has a mustache. He's gained a lot of weight. Um, and so much of um, what he processes in terms of his um, uh, relationship to his, his craft is so interior. It's really not a explosive or greatly expressive kind of performance. Um, you feel that it's all just a little bit beneath the surface as he's, um, kind of deciding how to move forward and what, 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 what is best for him. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I thought it was really good. Meditia Modak from The Disciple. Awesome. Who's your favorite actress of the year so far? My favorite actress we talked about at the very beginning of the episode, that being Sophia Koppel, the lead in Pleasure. So I will be deferring this time instead to another actress who I felt very pained not to be able to uh, talk about, but I'm going to cheat and do it anyways. That being Thuso Mdebu, the lead actress in the Amazon limited series, The Underground Railroad. I didn't know for about the first half I'd say of that project what to think about her. She's doing a lot of restrained um, work. She's not really talking. She's barely indicating. She very much just looks like someone caught in the headlights who is a prisoner. And then as the project continues, you realize how impressive that role that she's doing is and the interiority that she's able to translate silently and the way that she carries herself to depict the how defeated she is and and somehow has this will to move on i i think that it's an incredible performance from an actress that i was previously totally 
unfamiliar with. She was completely off my radar. And I think that she's just one of the, the greatest gifts that I've found in viewing uh, cinema, however you want to um, frame that word. Or, you know, I could say in the lens format language this year. Good show. I'm only on episode three now, so I have a ways to go, but I dig it thus far. She's terrific. Who is your selection for best actress? I have an actress from a movie called Hope, which is a European film. The lead actress's name is Andrea Brian Hovig. I'm probably uh, not pr- pronouncing that quite right, but this Good uh, Good I, I, I try, I try. The star is still in Skarsgård as well. Um, it's largely autobiographical, if I understand correctly. It's Mar- the director's name is Maria Sodal. It's about her experience with cancer. I kind of like this movie for how it kind of starts in media res. It's like a year after this woman has already been diagnosed with and treated somewhat for cancer. And we meet her around Christmas time where she realizes that this is um, coming where the the cancer is is coming back and her marriage is really at a rocky place. And it's about like, what do you do maritally romantically when you don't know that you're going to come out of something alive? Do you, spend the rest of this time with this person do you um break break it off what like what do you what do you do in that situation um and uh really hard truths end up coming out um between this couple um as they they navigate this this situation um she has a couple kids of her own. She is a stepmom to a couple of Stellan Skarsgård's kids. One of the more memorable scenes in this movie is where she sort of um, bursts, it, it, like this 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 emotion kind of bursts out of her, and she starts talking about the difference between how she feels about her kids versus his kids. Um, one of the more striking scenes in the movie for um, just how kind of raw and, and unfiltered it is. That's what really is so striking about this movie. Um and it's just not cloying in the way so many kind of cancer dramas can be. Um, it's very, I think, sensitive and smart. Um, yeah, that, her name is uh, Andrea Brian Hovig in Hope. You gotta see it. We did that first impression on it, but um, oh yeah, that's it sounds right. Like it's it's a lot better than uh, that trailer made it look. Yeah, very Let's just as easily could have been in my top ten for sure. All right, on to number three. What's your number three of the year so far? My number three is from a director that we've never talked about and we don't talk about enough. And now we will spend three hours talking about that director is Steven Soderbergh. What? With the film No Sudden Move. You said a man want to see me. Ali Albert. Can't come in. What is he, white? Oh, boy. So what's the score? We're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except... What do you want? Is that something you'd say? Normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. Can I go home now? Wait at the house after. What do you mean after? Right off of you. What is going on? What's going on, big guy? Yeah, what are we doing? We're following instructions. Are you helping me or are you not helping me? No, 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 no. Thank you. Set up, man. 
playing on HBO Max, and I think in limited runs in New York and LA. Unfortunately, I don't live there, so I can't see it on a big, beautiful screen, which is how this film should be watched. Um, I already talked briefly about those lenses that they use. I, I think that I've heard a lot of people talk about it as a fisheye lens. I think there's an argument to be made that it, it is um, an anamorphic lens like within that range, but I really don't see it as a fisheye the way that I would talk about the favorite um, using mm-hmm. a fisheye lens. I, I definitely get the sense that this is making it larger and almost bigger than life like Cinemascope did. Um, so I, I would definitely make that differentiation for anyone that's aware of the conversation happening around the use of lens. Um, there's definitely no way to get in focus when you're close to an actor. So the only people in focus are going to be deeper in the frame because it is such a big, massive lens. But it's shooting multiple rooms, kind of almost looking two-dimensional a lot of times. Um, it's got a giant, impressive cast. It's it's a very steely, um, kind of dark, 50, 50s-looking film, which is when it's based. It is a noir Um, it's about Don Cheadle who, uh, is kind of released from prison and looking for what his next steps are. And all of a sudden he's got a job and he's thrust, uh, arm in arm with Benicio del Toro to, uh, begin a job. And a third guy comes in and there's an involvement with the family, which, uh, brings in Amy Siemens, who is terrific in the piece David Harbour plays her husband. He's he's equally funny. Uh, you have Bill Duke playing a pimp character who's kind of the lead gangster here in, in Detroit. It's a or maybe it's Chicago. I can't remember the exact location. It's probably Chicago. It's a it's a very um, fun tapestral film. It, it's filled with lots of different pieces that work cohesively. And I think this is one of those films where um, you might think that it's kind of empty at first after you watch it and then you start talking about it and you point at things and you realize that that thing is actually like informing you to think about that deeper and that it's actually representing something in a way that a lot of films don't. Um, and I love it. And as always, I love Soderbergh. That's the end of our three hour conversation about Steven Soderbergh. Tune in next week for 12 hours on Steven Soderbergh. One I thought I was going to get to before this episode and ended up watching other things, but it'll definitely happen before the end of the year for sure. It's a great film. I highly recommend it. HBO Max. What is your number three, Michael? My number three is called Anne at 13,000 Feet. You are now queen of the world. Okay. I want to work up until being able to go by myself. Hands all the way up. Perfect. Did you tell them that we were only casually dating and that it's not as serious as you said it was in front of them? No, I didn't say that to them. You feel the lift off the ground and you feel the plane climbing into the sky. Which is directed by a filmmaker named Kozak Rodwanski. He's a Canadian filmmaker. It's an English language film. Um, the lead actress here is named Dara Campbell. Uh, this is more or less about a girl who's in her 20s or so and going through something like a 
kind of emotional, mental downward spiral. She's like a preschool teacher or a daycare school teacher. Um, she is a little bit um, emotionally unstable at the moment. She is constantly sort of um, uh, causing anxiety amongst her colleagues at work as she does some uh, things uh, as she exhibits some questionable behavior, uh, she gets into a relationship with a guy she meets at a wedding. Um, very much about this, very much a, a character study about a girl in emotional, mental turmoil. Um, really, really nicely acted by this lead, Derek Campbell. Um, I can't put it too much better than one of the phrases that Cinema Guild uses where they say it's a volatile mix of Darden Brothers' immediacy and Cassavetti's naturalism, which I think pretty pretty nicely sums up the sensibility here um lots of movies on my list this year just so happen to be on the slower side of things pace wise this one is very much not that this has some get up and go for sure as she kind of um moves along this this downward spiral and the title in at 13,000 feet alludes to the fact that she has taken up this interest in skydiving after doing it with some friends, I think, for a bachelorette party. And I kind of like that it's not used, like, too explicitly as a metaphor. It's kind of like subtext that's elevated to the level of text. It is just something that she is doing. Um, but it sort of nicely echoes, you know, the fact that she is um, very much uh, falling and falling apart. Um, quite uh, quite, quite a uh, roller coaster, that is for sure. Um, and that comes out... Uh, Later this year, I believe, um, I listened to one interview with the guy from Cinema Guild who said that they were kind of ready to go with it, like pre-COVID, and then they just decided to sit on it for the entirety of COVID because it's one they really wanted to put out in theaters. Hmm. Um, so uh, hopefully later this, or I believe it will be later this year. Yeah, it sounds like a film I think we covered on the show earlier, uh, Christian F, where a, a girl bottoms out. No drug use here, fortunately. Um, yeah, but just the, mm. the slow to fast downward mm. spiral. Yes, that uh, also is a rough ride. Uh, where are we at? We, we are, are on to your favorite documentary of the year. Skipping yours. Yours was All Light Everywhere? Correct. Cool. Uh, mine is, uh, it is called A River Runs, Turns, Erases, Replaces. We... Talked about this on our Hot Docs episode. Um, this is uh, a portrait of Wuhan, China. Um, shot primarily through these sort of um, wide shots that show us different sections of Wuhan um, uh, from all these different angles that really kind of underscore the uh, kind of development of the city's infrastructure over time. Um one thing I learned about it is that it actually unfolds kind of um, in reverse chronological order, where we open with a shot that shows us Wuhan coming out of um, lockdown from the pandemic um, in this long take that shows us the sirens that I think most people are kind of familiar with if they've followed Wuhan throughout the pandemic. Um, but then the rest of the movie is actually all from uh, pre-COVID, and it's just about, and that's what she, the director was originally interested in, was just in... Um, kind of portraying the uh, city's transformation. It's her home city. Um, at the time that we talked about it, I was thinking a lot about the work of Jia Zhengka, um, the Chinese filmmaker who's very interested in kind of China's transformations um, in, in this century. 
Um, but I more recently have thought about the work of James Benning, uh, the experimental filmmaker who has made films like Ten Skies and Thirteen Lakes, which employ these kind of similar approaches where there is sort of a self-imposed constraint the filmmaker puts on themselves where, you know, she's never moving the camera. She's never using close-ups. She's just using wide shots. And I like that idea of filmmakers kind of setting certain boundaries for themselves and trying to find kind of expansiveness and, and ideas um, within within a framework. Um, I think there's just a kind of a formal um, rigor to this kind of approach that I think most people will find just terribly boring. It's a unique sensibility for sure. Or maybe, uh, I don't know, a not a not terribly popular sensibility. We'll put it that way. But um, I think it's I think it's very interesting and a uh, well-shot movie. So that is A River Runs, Turns, Erases, Replaces. Most importantly, there is an ox that shits in the water. That is apparently Taylor's favorite scene. That is my favorite scene. <laughs> All right, Michael, we are on to our number two favorite films of the year so far. And in fitting order, my number two is not, in fact, a film, but rather the 585-minute limited series from Barry Jenkins, The Underground Railroad on Amazon Prime. Here I saw a dappled wonder settling across the fields. Hovering on angel wings, brandishing a blazing shield. Where do they go? The ones that run away and never return. There is nothing here but suffering. Pain and suffering. It is time to go. Girl in that bulletin is wanted for the murder of a child. Man lost my mom. Then me. Ain't no way he ever given up on finding me. This is an adaptation of the, uh, I guess, it, was it fantastical or was it fiction? When you read the, the novel, Michael. It's unclear to me whether it, it is more fantasy in the novel or if this was a, I haven't read it myself, or if it was just a fictional piece. Uh, it very much adheres to the book in so far as it, you know, imagines that the railroad itself is real. That element is consistently okay. fantastic in both. Yeah, it's fantastical, but it's very much a fiction that's very close. You know, it's depicting a lot of harsh things that are true. So I wouldn't really call it fantasy. I didn't know if there were some yeah, more fantastical yeah. elements maybe within the novel, but it, it's mm -hmm. very much just a, uh, <laughs> a slightly more hopeful underground situation in a very harrowing above ground situation. Um, the, Synopsis of the limited series is as follows. Follow young Cora's journey as she makes a desperate bid for freedom in the antebellum South. After escaping her Georgia plantation for the rumored Underground Railroad, Cora discovers no mere metaphor, but an actual railroad full of engineers and conductors and a secret network of tracks and tunnels beneath the southern soil. Um, I think that's a pretty accurate description of the project. It does not talk about how harrowing these scenes are. There's, I, I think, the most brutal and unfortunately cheesy scene is the end of that episode one 
which mm-hmm. is a depiction of, of horror. But unfortunately, it's a, it uses CG to communicate um, something that probably did really happen. I, I don't know the details about where they're making that reference from or, or if that's historically, um, you know, tracked anywhere. But basically, a man is, is burnt alive and the fire is incredibly fake um, and it really kind of undercuts what is otherwise a very emotional moment and a crescendo to the beginning of this, this series as we get the, the locomotive um, started both within the project and the project itself. Uh, Joel Edgerton plays a supporting actor who is chasing her the entire time, essentially, and he plays a very fraught, concerned um hand-wringing type of a character who's very much a grown teenage boy who's filled with bravado but empty of um, semantics and understanding and and diction of of thought. He's he's very much just someone who does a deed and never really put any thought into it. And um, there's also a young boy who plays Homer by the name of Chase W. Dillon, and he has what is easily the best performance by a kid this year, child actor, whatever you want to say, in, in quite some time. I think really, for me, it'd be Leave No Trace would be the last time that I thought uh, a younger actor really just swept me away. This is a young boy who um, is black, but doesn't act at all like he's black and is traveling with Joel Edgerton. And um, he's put in these very odd situations and it, it there, there's not really a right way to talk about it. It's something you have to experience and the, the sense that you get from his looks. Um, it's an incredible project and a terrific ride. I, I don't want to talk about it further without spoiling anything, but I, I do think this is, if you spend time with a limited series that's come out already this year, I think this is the one to prioritize. Yeah, I like it a lot so far. I've kind of been thinking about that one um, in terms of... Uh, it's sort of like recognizing that sometimes just realism is not enough to represent certain things, certain <laughs> certain experiences, and the idea that yeah, the, the the railroad itself was not an actual train that was that ran beneath the ground, but in order to like appreciate just how much hope the existence of this network what that meant to people in terms of the hope it offered, you almost have to have something like fantastical because it's so. It, it's, it would have been so important to you when your circumstances were so extremely awful. Um, I completely agree. I, I think that I would also map that further and not just about the book itself, but I think that sometimes realism can't properly articulate something that is real. And I think Jenkins really balances that as a filmmaker or a director or a, a lens craft worker beautifully. I think in If Beale Street Could Talk, there's that, that violent scene on the corner that I, I think, you, you know, it's very heightened. It's very, um, you know, played up to really help you understand stuff. The the moment with Dave Franco where they're looking for a flat. Oh, right, yeah. around the, right, like all that stuff is a little bit bigger than life. And I think that that's what Jenkins is good at. He's finding these real things and then finding a way to make them bigger than life and dramatic so that you can understand what really occurred. Yeah, for sure. I have more to go. That is The Underground Railroad. Now available on Amazon Prime. What is your number two favorite film of the year, Michael? It is Days.
from Taiwanese filmmaker Siming Liang. Uh, I want to say this is like his ninth or tenth film, perhaps. Um, this one is set in Bangkok. Uh, it's a film with little to no dialogue throughout the entirety of it. Uh, we follow, follow two different men, uh, both of whom for most of the movie are kind of going about their ordinary daily lives. We, we watch each of them in parallel until they meet up at a certain point and f- for a transactional sexual encounter uh, that um, is, is really just as is, is no less moving for the fact that it is ultimately a transactional experience. One is paying the other for the pleasure given and received. Uh, and then they go their separate ways after this experience at the, after, after it has happened, after it has happened towards the end of the movie. Um, so plot wise, very minimal. That is for sure. Uh, it's very still movie, not a great deal of camera movement. That's probably one of my themes this year across my top 10 coincidentally. Um, it stars one of size, uh, Long-term, long-time uh, muses, Lee Kang-Shang, and I think you can maybe call it a, a work of docu-fiction to some extent because of how it incorporates some elements of uh, Lee Kang-Shang's real life, like the fact that he's had this um, neck ailment that has troubled him for many years, I think, and that has been depicted in other films of size as well. You know, we watch some of the treatment he uh, gets to try and alleviate some of this pain and discomfort he experiences. Um, that's incredibly moving. It's incredible just how tactile some of these compositions are, which are always very still. Um, and really just, it just feels like it's just kind of one masterpiece after another in these shot compositions, um, and how, uh, tangible some of this, uh, skin and flesh in these guys' bodies feel as they do, um, their kind of ordinary daily routines. Um, yeah, uh, not one that I would uh, just I would say people need to worry about if they're worried about subtitles because there are practically no subtitles to uh, read. Um, it's just a very quiet, minimalistic film, but uh, I think it's a very moving one and ravishingly shot. Um, that is Days, and that comes out uh, in a couple weeks uh, from Grasshopper. I'm looking forward to it. On to... Favorite classic discoveries of the year, Michael. To keep the theme going, I'm going to talk about a documentary released in 1976 from the filmmaker Barbara Koppel. This film is called Harlan County, USA. I'll give you the brief synopsis as listed on Letterboxd. This film documents the coal miners' strike against the Brookside Mine of Eastover Mining Company in the Harlan County of Kentucky and the year 1973. Eastover's refusal to sign a contract when the miners joined with the United Mine Workers of America led to the strike, which lasted more than a year, included violent battles between gun-toting company thugs, scabs, and the picketing miners and their supportive women folk. Director Barbara Koppel puts the strike into perspective by giving us background on the historical plight of the miners and some history of the UMWA, the UMWA being that um, union that they joined, the United Mine Workers of America. Mm-hmm. This film is one that I just popped on. I sorted uh, HBO Max by highest rated unwatched on Letterboxd and then picked documentary because I felt like a documentary and I clicked play and 
by gosh, by golly, I had one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my entire life. This is a harrowing depiction. Um, it mentions in that synopsis that there's scabs and these company thugs, but you actually see on screen trucks come by with thugs that are brandishing weapons and um, people, I, I mean, I will spoil it because it came out in 1976, people get killed in this over over this uh, this union strike and the, the company is brutal and they often have no comment, stay off screen, but you see their enforcers and their thugs within the frame of the camera and their brutality and their brutishness. Um, I think at one point they're picketing on the way to work and um, someone swerves in to try to hit um, the, the picketing miners at a very high speed and they barely don't get clipped. You know, it's, it's a, a tremendously paced kind of documentary where you're constantly involved and it seems like it's going slow, but you're, you're kind of not taking a breath. You're waiting to relax and there just is no ability to relax. It's, I, I think the most interesting depiction of, um, the need for unionization or perhaps the argument for unionization in certain situations. Um, that subject is obviously coming up a lot recently with the issues going on with um, Amazon drivers and Amazon factory workers um, that is very highly depicted in the news right now with um, their difficulties having to go to the bathroom in bags or um, having to take breaks in which they can't actually reach a ba break room. So I think that Harlan County USA is um, available on HBO Max. It's available on Criterion. I think it's a harrowing documentary, but it's a it's a, um, a documentary that's effusive in its look at the stark realities. It's non-judgmental and it lets everything speak for itself. And when you watch everything that speaks for itself, it's pretty uh, damnable how corrupt the uh, anti-union sentiments were by that mining company. This is a blind spot for me. One that has definitely been on my watch list for a long time. Um, sometimes that's what you got to do to watch these is just sort by popularity and go for one of those and mm -hmm. don't think too much about it. Well, you I end up with the five highest stars. rated. Highest rated. Yeah, yeah. Not most popular. Highest rated. There you go. Yeah, most popular cool. <laughs> is how we watch, you know. Other stuff. Black Widow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. All right. What is your favorite classical discovery of the year, Michael? Mine's a little bit of a cheat. I'm not going with a particular title, but Cheater. rather a collection of shorts, which are um, a collection of shorts by the Italian filmmaker Vittorio De Sita. And there were eight to ten shorts or so that he made, I want to say in the late 50s, over a 10-year period or so, like yeah, mid fifties to maybe mid sixties in which he, uh, documents, uh, Italian working class life. Most of these, uh, shorts, if I'm remembering correctly, are anywhere from kind of like 10 to 20 minutes. Um, there is one that, uh, focuses on wheat farmers. There's one that focuses on fishermen. There's one that focuses on miners. They all start in kind of a similar fashion with some, uh, on-screen text that just kind of sets this, the stage for you, tells you where you are, what you're about to see, you know, the, 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 uh, the people you're about to watch, but there's no narration. There's no dialogue. They're very, very visually driven. Um, they're non fiction but they're just they feel like these miraculous little poems and how um they're edited with edited with these jump cuts they're shot so much um with the focus on 
uh, kind of earthly beauty and the relationship between these people as they kind of work off the land um, that is just one after the next just feels like a miracle and how um, kind of small but so dense with beauty they are. Um, they're ones that I think um, Scorsese's foundation restored at some point. That's probably why they look as good as they do. These are all on the uh, Criterion channel at the moment. Um, the one about fishermen in particular reminds like it feels like one of the most action-packed pieces of cinema I've seen all year. It's it's thrilling to, to, to see as he edits it with this really kind of rapid pace. And these guys are spearfishing. It's incredible. Um and they're they're bite sized. They are very very doable. Um, so uh, highly recommended. Those are all by Vittorio De Sita. I have tons of blind spots there, and I feel like I need to watch that collection. So I will uh, be referencing the links in your letterbox shortly. <clears throat> all right, Michael. We are on to our number one film of the year so far. Are you ready? Don't want to save it for next time, maybe? Maybe next time. Yeah, let's end the episode here. Oh, no, all right. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, Michael. My number one film is, um, as I explained to you earlier, um, actually two parts. Um, One part is largely undistributed. The film itself is not even out. This is Gaspar Noé's Lux Eterna with the first part being The Art of Filmmaking, which shows a psychotropic, psychedelic experience uh, over The King of Kings, um, or some scenes from The King of Kings by Cecil B. DeMille, um, in which there is a constant strobing effect behind it, and it is, um, I would say, hallucinatory um, invoking, if not, um, you know, thought-provoking at minimum. Um, The film Lux Eterna itself stars Charlotte Gainsbourg as well as Beatrice Dalle. Um, This film is about a artistic process becoming the crucifixion, essentially, of all of those who are laboring for the art and the crucifixion by those who have the funds or the animosity towards the, um, what I I would say are the innocent parties. I don't think that anyone here is actually innocent, but I do think that everyone here is actually innocent of anything to be guilty of within the frame. These are all real people, so they're guilty of tons of things outside of the context of the film. But within the framework, um, those who are punished, I think, are, are largely all innocent. And it's a fascinating observation of film to start with this artifact of, of great, tremendous by Cecil B. DeMille in which the, I mean, the, the framing and the pageantry and the, the set decoration and the, the nuance to every little thing and being presented in this uh, strobing effect and really appreciating kind of like the, each individual image from the strobing effect and how perfectly framed it is really sets up a, a way of looking at the film. Um, the film Lux Eterna itself, if you remove the art of filmmaking, starts with um, kind of a historical look at torture devices for witches and 
they're they're sitting in these uh, armchairs at the beginning of the film talking and uh, Doll asks to see uh, Charlotte's ears and she looks and she says, oh yeah, yours aren't cut, your lobes aren't cut either. You'd also be a witch. And it, it's just these little anecdotes that build in the, the previous part of the film into the film proper. And everything's kind of building and informing itself. This was famously one of the, um, God, what is it, St. Laurent um, short films that were commissioned from a bunch of different filmmakers, Jonathan Glazer's one that actually came due. Um, but in true Gaspar in the way of fashion, his got so unwieldy and away from him that I think they dropped it, but they still are associated, but they never put it out um, because Noe had to go bigger than whatever it was that they, they wanted to do, which is delightful in and of itself that, that his film uh, you know, he's abusing the producer's money on just like the, the meta aspect of the content of the film there is superb. Um, there's a, a couple quotes that I did want to get to, one of which being uh, a quote by Dreyer near the very beginning of the film. Um, you know that this is no way of talking to you. And the, I didn't get it perfectly because the translation is a little bit off and it went really fast. But it essentially says, we filmmakers have a big responsibility to raise the industry into an art form. And I think that is exactly an examination of what the entire film does. Um, there's also another moment that I think is entirely why I love films like this, why I love filmmakers like Noe, why I responded so positively to Waves. Um, this is from Dale. She says, a film that she wants to watch. I need to get inspired or carried away. It's like drugs. And I think that that really cements um, maybe what I'm looking for, too, in film. I need to be carried away. I need to be taken away. And yes, as as she mentions and then trails off, it is like drugs. And then she goes on to say something like, why did I go to drugs? You know, she starts self-examining. But that is what I'm looking for. I'm looking to be taken somewhere and really um, committed into a new experience where I, I get off the, the ride having had a, a, a very experiential time where my my entire body had reacted and I couldn't control it essentially. And that is what this film does for me. And I think what this film may do for many others, um, that is Lux Eterna, which in Latin means eternal light. And it is by far my favorite film of the year. <laughs> This is one that I feel like is the kind of thing we do a disservice to when we only, when we primarily talk about movies in terms of like features and shorts because it's right in the middle. It's like, you know, depending on whether you watch it with that intro or not, it's 50 to 65 minutes or something mm -hmm. like that, which is more like medium length film. And I feel like some people use that term, but too often something of that length ends up slipping through the cracks just because people aren't used to it yeah but like the film doesn't need to be any longer or any shorter than uh how long it is uh but i hope you know something like movie or one of those services uh picks it up eventually um, I, I would i would think so but we'll see yeah, fingers crossed I, I mean it should have been distributed back in 2019 so 
fingers crossed. It, it is beautiful, and if you get a chance to see it through uh, stan.au in Australia, um, you know, you can at least see part of it, if not the art of filmmaking. I don't know that that'll ever be properly released. Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite film of the year so far, Michael? What I have in my number one slot is called Beginning. Psst. Huh? Georgian film. The director's name is Dea Kulumbegashvili. Say it three times fast for me. I, I that one was hard enough. Uh, <laughs> this is a debut film. Um, I think I read that it's the first Georgian film to ever play in the main competition at uh, the New York Film Festival. This is one that was like supposed to play at Cannes twenty twenty before that got canceled and maybe played in like the small edition that eventually happened or something like that hmm. but it's on movie now um this is set in georgia it's set within a jehovah's witness community we primarily follow a woman named yana who is the wife of the uh community's leader um as she experiences this kind of psychological breakdown that's kind of related to both the uh, religious community, this very patriarchal, um, disciplined community, as well as sort of pressure applied by uh, violent extremists that um, have started to attack the community. Um, it's It starts with what I think is maybe one of the more like jolting and memorable opening scenes in recent memory, where we are in this church and her, her husband, our main character's husband, is giving this sermon um, and the camera's kind of parked in the aisle of the church and watching him deliver this sermon in a long take. And maybe a third of the way through this take, we see this Molotov cocktail come flying through the window from someone off screen and the room kind of erupts in chaos and people are panicked and trying to get out of the room and the camera just remains totally fixed in this position and kind of watches everyone scramble. And right away you're like, what, what am I in for? It's, it's very harrowing, but, um, uh, a real jolt to the system immediately. And as we follow this character, as she really sort of struggles with where she is psychologically in a very, very serious um, way, the movie's sort of interesting for how it um, alternates between moments like that one that are very harrowing and others that are very, very serene and almost like peaceful and tranquil. There's this much talked about scene where she goes with her son to the woods nearby just for like a little afternoon and she ends up laying down in the woods as he's playing and we watch her just like rest on the floor of these woods for minutes on end in this long take that's at kind of this odd just slightly off angle and you're just kind of listening to the noise in the the woods um and it's so in contrast with the um uh very dark material we see elsewhere um it's just an extraordinarily beautiful uh, movie to look at. It's very, very um, beautifully composed. Um, 
if there's ever a film that needs a trigger warning, I would say this is definitely one. I don't, it's not much of a spoiler. I think it's worth saying that there is a rape scene that I think is easily one of the most, like, disturbing I've seen in, in a long while. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't reward things that are disturbing just for the sake of being disturbing. You know, they have to have value. They have to have purpose. And I think this definitely has that, but it is quite shocking when it happens. Um, but yeah, man, the command of craft in this movie, especially from someone who's never made a movie before, is just next level. Um, I've heard some people talk about how this movie and a couple other Georgian movies that have premiered over the like you know festival circuit over the past year may be kind of representing kind of a new Georgian uh, Georgian new wave um, with some other films that have been highly acclaimed. This being one of them, um, so. Uh, Heavy stuff, but really beautiful stuff. It's called Beginning, and that's on movie streaming there. And available for rental on VOD. I need to see it. That sounds like one hell of a directorial debut. That it is. That it is. All right, Michael. Well, that is the end of uh, the year so far. We'll just keep going. I guess. That's another one in the can. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant.